Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Researchers once surveyed people about their favorite room in the house. Now, before I go any further, I want you to turn to somebody that you know and you're safe talking with right now, okay? And I want you to tell them what's your favorite room in the house. Lake County, I want you to do it as as well. Online, if you're watching with someone, tell them what's your favorite room in the house. What's your favorite room now? Go ahead and tell them. All right, you got to figure it out. Top answer was the kitchen. That's the top answer. Is that your answer? Most husbands' top answer was the bedroom. (laughs) Big shocker there, huh? Yeah, that's revelation. You want to guess what the top answer was for mothers of young children? The bathroom. (laughs) Why? Because you can lock that door and keep those little critters out of there. You can keep your husband out of there, too. The idea is that you find some place where you know you are alone. You are free of stress. You find in biblical language a sanctuary, a holy space. God wants to give us sanctuary. There's a unique kind of experiencing the presence of God when we are gathered together in worship. And we talked about that last week. But there's also a unique way in which we experience the presence of God when we are alone, when nobody else is around, and God has our full attention. This is a hard thing for many of us. Many of us are wired for activity, and we get restless when we try to rest. In fact, for most of us, there's a tension. It's been described like this. Being versus doing. Being versus doing. This is not a new tension. It's at least as old as this iconic story found in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 10. We're going to pick it up, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself. Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. There is so much going on in this short story below the surface. For one thing, let me point this out. 
Mary has placed herself in what has traditionally been an all-male space sitting at the feet of a rabbi. Women didn't sit at a rabbi's feet. Only men did that. The fact that Martha says, tell her to help me, is her way of reinforcing the traditional, albeit invisible, male-female boundary that Mary has carelessly crossed. Sort of like Martha saying, tell her to get in the kitchen where she belongs. The fact that Jesus sides with Mary over Martha tells us the value that Jesus viewed women with. In fact, it would not be an exaggeration to say that no male figure from ancient history did more to elevate the dignity and worth of women than Jesus. And he left behind a loving and learning community where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So there's that going on in this story. And that's not to be missed or minimized. But there's more. Some people have framed this story in such a way as to pit Mary the worshiper against Martha the worker. Martha was actively trying to feed everyone. And this was a meal of a minimum of 15 people, counting Jesus and the 12, 13, and there's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There's at least that many there. That's a lot of stress. And in the process, Martha became resentful at her sister who was lounging around at Jesus' feet instead of helping her. Many people who read this passage come away with this application. Be worshipful like Mary and resist working frenetically like Martha. And that's a common and understandable application. But I think there's another way to look at this. You see, like Martha, Jesus had plenty of moments of intense and demanding activity. Yet he always remained anchored and attentive in the presence of his father. Perhaps the issue with Martha was not her busyness, but with her lack of attentiveness. As West African theologian Robert Sarah wrote, Jesus rebukes Martha not for being busy in the kitchen. After all, she did have a meal to prepare and for no small amount of people but for her inattentive interior attitude. Christ tenderly invites her to stop so as to return to her heart, the place of true welcome and the dwelling place of God's silent tenderness from which she had been led away by the activity to which she was devoting herself so noisily. Here's what we can say. Martha is actively serving Jesus, but she's missing him. Martha is actively serving Jesus, but she's missing him. Her life in this moment is defined by duty, by shoulds and have-tos, pressures and distractions. But her commitment to her duties has disconnected her from what sustains her devotion. In fact, Martha's problem goes well beyond her momentary busyness in the kitchen. Her life itself is uncentered and fragmented. And you may say, well, how can you say that? Well, let me tell you something. One of the surest signs that your life is out of order is when you start telling Jesus what to do. 
That's what Martha does. What'd she say? Tell her to help me. She said that to Jesus. And right after that, Jesus said, Martha, Martha. And when Jesus uses your name twice, watch out. When Jesus says your name twice, watch out. Something significant is about to be shared. And then Jesus tenderly reveals and rebukes the frazzled state of Martha's inner world. Look at what he said. You are worried and upset about many things. Worried and upset literally means to be pulled apart. You're pulled apart, Martha. In other words, there's something more than plating up food for 15 people troubling Martha. Even if she'd taken the time to sit at Jesus' feet like Mary, she probably would have been distracted and irritated. This isn't just a domestic dust-up about meal preparation. This is a deep dive into Martha's inner world perspective. Mary, by contrast, sits at the feet of Jesus listening to him. She's simply focused on being with Jesus. She's enjoying communion with him. She's loving him. She's attentive. She's open. She's taking pleasure in his presence. She's engaged in a slowed down spirituality that prioritizes being with Jesus over doing for Jesus. Mary has one center of gravity, Jesus. And I think even if Mary had gotten up to help with the many household chores like Martha wanted, she would not have been worried or upset by the same preparations that distracted her sister. Why? Because she slowed down enough to focus on Jesus and to center her life on him. And Jesus said that was the better choice. So here we go. Too many followers of Jesus are chronically overextended and doing more for Jesus than their inner life can sustain. Let me say that one more time. Too many followers of Jesus are chronically overextended and doing more for Jesus than their inner life with him can sustain. They have too much to do. They have too much going on. They have too little time. And they say a default yes to requests and opportunities without carefully discerning God's will. They're overloaded, they're overwhelmed, and they're depleted. And that is the normal for their life. Martha is actively serving Jesus, but the pressures and demands of her work distract her from him. While her hospitality is to be commended, her being with Jesus is not sufficient to sustain her doing for Jesus. Her spiritual life is imbalanced. Take a look at this diagram. Martha kind of looks like this. Doing for God. One more thing to do. One more assignment. Can you do this? Sure, I can do that. Can you pick them up? Yeah. Would you like to serve on this team? Yes. See, these are the people that we, we, we ask. You've heard that saying, right? If you want something done, ask a busy person. This is Martha. She's doing for God. But her being with God leaves a lot to be desired. And eventually, this cannot sustain that. Mary, on the other hand, sits at Jesus' feet. She's listening to him. She knows how to prioritize being with Jesus over doing for Jesus. And Jesus makes it clear. Mary has chosen what is better, sitting at his feet, listening to him. And this will not be taken from her. Mary's diagram would look something like this. She's more balanced. She's being with God, 
but she also knows how to do for God as well. There's a balance in life. The story of Mary and Martha demonstrates a vitally important truth. The active life in the world for God can only properly flow from a deep inner life with God. The active life in the world for God can only properly flow from a deep inner life with God. When we integrate our doing for and our being with, our lives have a beauty, a harmony, and a clarity that makes the spiritual life both full and joyful. When we have sufficiently slowed down to be with God, our activity is marked by a deep loving communion with God. That's when Christ's life, more often than not, is able to flow through us to others, which means it's naturally reflected in the way we make disciples and build healthy communities. Prioritizing being with over doing for has deep roots in the New Testament and in early church history. Here's a few examples. Jesus. Before launching his public ministry of doing, Jesus spent almost 30 years in hiddenness and just being. He was deeply establishing his identity and oneness with the Father. Once he launched the public phase of his ministry, Jesus intentionally moved back and forth between doing active ministry and being alone with the Father. When Jesus selected the 12 to be his inner circle, he followed the same pattern requiring that they be with him before doing active ministry for him. Take a look at this. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. I want you to notice this. Be with him always comes before send them out. The 12, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the 12 carried on in this same pattern of being before doing as they led the early church, giving their attention to prayer and ministry of the word, took precedence over all else. Even when the church experienced times of explosive growth, they refused to allow the incessant demands and problems of ministry to compromise their grounding in being with Jesus. The early church. In the first 300 years of the church, leaders developed a serious discipleship training process. Why? Well, the Roman Empire, at different times and in different regions, unleashed severe persecutions against followers of Jesus. Some Christians chose to deny their faith rather than be martyred or tortured. They became known as the lapsed. Some old-timers used to call people who fall away from their faith backsliders. I once met a man who'd really veered off the course of Christian living and he wrecked his life and he wrecked his family. And he said, pastor, I didn't just backslide, I had an avalanche. When the persecution subsided, some of the lapsed wanted to return to Christian community. This created a real dilemma for the early church leaders. And they quickly realized that simply getting people to just do Christian behaviors, attend the worship gatherings, serve the needy, participate in fellowship, that was not enough for people to stand firm in Jesus amidst such intense pressure. So they established a clear pathway to help people grow in their being with Jesus so they could persevere in their witness and life 
for Jesus. Theologians from the early church and into the Middle Ages are an example of this. From the second to the seventh centuries, most of the greatest pastors and leaders, sometimes they're referred to by historians as doctors of the church. I'm talking about Athanasius, Basil the Great, Ambrose, Jerome, John Chrysostom, Augustine of Hippo, Gregory the Great. They were first monks anchored in a life of prayer and being with God, and their service flowed out from that abundance and experience with Jesus. I'm saying this to you. A spiritual formation culture committed to being before doing slows down the discipleship process and radically shifts priorities. The conversations we have are different. So are the questions we ask. We become more reflective and we ask ourselves questions like this. Do I really want people to imitate the way I'm living? In what areas of my life am I speaking of things that I'm not living? Pete Scazzaro, who's really responsible for much of the material I'm presenting today, he says there's three statements that summarize the be-before-you-do approach to ministry. Number one, you cannot give what you do not possess. You cannot give what you do not possess. Educator and activist Parker Palmer makes a compelling case that burnout typically does not come about because we're, we've given so much of ourselves that we have nothing left. On the contrary... Parker Palmer says, it merely reveals the nothingness from which I was trying to give in the first place. Number two, what you do is important, but who you are is even more important. As long as we remained enslaved to a culture of speed, superficiality, and distraction, we will not be the people God longs for us to be. And number three, the state you're in is the state you give to others. The state you're in is the state you give to others. Rich Velotis, wonderful new writer in a book that came out just this year called The Deeply Formed Life. He said, the speed we live at does violence against our souls. The inner and outer distractions minimize the capacity for us to see God's activity around us and within us. Velotis says he sometimes imagines a scenario in which someone is locked inside of a supermarket and dies of starvation. Can you imagine such a thing? You say it's impossible. Yet in our spiritual lives, it happens every day. You see, whether you know it or not, we're locked inside the supermarket of God's abundant life and love. It's available to us. Even so, people are spiritually starving. But it doesn't have to be that way. God is committed to being with us every day. He moves towards us in love, reaching, seeking, and pleading with us to pay attention to him. The question is, are we willing to be with him? I love this statement that Mark Batterson made. I read it in a book of his several years ago. It said this, we all want to spend eternity with God. We just don't want to spend time with him. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to take the time to let heaven come to earth in them. What does spending time with God look like? I'm going to give you some practical suggestions. Number one, find your room. Find your room. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who's unseen, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, don't Americanize 
this verse, don't think of your home. In Jesus' day, almost no homes had private bedrooms. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, well, that means you need a prayer closet. Now, he's not talking about a prayer closet. They didn't even have closets. The room he refers to in this text might be a supply room where they kept feed and tools for a few small animals. That would perhaps be the only place where there was a door. It would be the humblest of rooms and the simplest of homes. Whatever it is for you, you gotta find your room. I'm gonna share something a little personal with you. I'm gonna show you my room. Take a look at this. This is a chair I sit in every day. A little cup of coffee. This is the enclosure that I look at. Sun's coming up over in this area now. Pretty soon it'll move or will move and it'll come up down there and I just sit there. It's my favorite time of the day. I don't miss that. I, may, I keep that appointment. I want you to notice what's not in that picture. There's no cell phone. I never take my cell phone. I don't, I don't even check my cell phone till this time is over. And I tried to, just, I thought, what are you gonna tell people what you do there? Because most of the time I just sit there quietly. Sometimes I pray silently. Sometimes I pray out loud. Sometimes I sing. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes I vent. It's amazing to me how much anger can come out of me so early in the morning sometimes. I'm serious. Would we just sing? I'm not enough unless you come. And I, I just, I'm reminded I'm not enough unless he comes. And I want to live a life that has nothing to prove and nothing to lose and nothing to hide. And I start my day there. Let me tell you the second place I go to. Now, this is inside our house. And this is where I start to read the scripture. It's a Bible. I read a Psalm every day. A lot of times I read it out loud to Melinda. I have a little commentary on the Gospel of Luke I'm reading right now. N.T. Wright wrote. I do that every day. And then I have a little book here that has readings by one of my favorite authors, Paul David Tripp. I read that every day. Again, no cell phones. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper wrote, there's a similarity between the structure of each individual life and the structure of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Now, some of you Old Testament scholars are gonna know this. The Old, Test the, the Old Testament tabernacle was divided into three separate compartments. Three compartments. There was the outer court. Everyone had access to the outer court. Likewise, Kuiper says, there's a public you. You too have an outer court, which is you when you go to work, when you go to school, when you go to shop, when you go to play. This is your appearance or your image and everyone sees this. In the tabernacle, there was also an inner chamber 
And it was called the holy place. And not everyone had access into this area. In fact, most people were not allowed in. You too have a holy place, the place where you only allow certain people to enter, such as your very close friends and your family. You decide who comes in and who doesn't. No one can force their way in. Now, someone may hold power over you vocationally or financially, but that does not allow them entrance. Maybe somebody wormed their way in there and you got to see a counselor or a therapist to get them out. But ultimately, everyone gets to decide who they allow in their inner chamber. There's one more chamber. Very small, carefully guarded place deep inside the tabernacle. It was called the Holy of Holies. It was entered, to, it was entered in only by the chief priest. And there was room only for one person and God. This is the mystery and depth and amazing truth about you and about me. Because whether you're young or old, whether you're a big man on campus or a little man on the totem pole, you have a place like that inside you. Only God is allowed in there. And no other human can come into your holy of holies. That's what it means when it says to find your room. By the way, have you ever said to someone, I know you so well, I know you better than you know yourself? You ever said that to someone? Let me ask you, did they take it as a compliment? Probably not, because that's truly one of the dumbest statements you can make. <laughs> because there are depths in each one of us no one else will ever know, even if we wanted them to. This is not because we're closed mouth or secretive. There are parts of us we simply cannot put into words. There are depths in us we don't even know ourselves. Only God knows. But we're never going to access that in busy, noisy, hurried spaces. Find your room. Secondly, be still. I didn't like these two words much when I was a kid. My mother and father said them to me often as I would wiggle and wriggle and rustle and stir about when they didn't want me to. I can still hear my dad say right now, be still. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Dustin Agard and I were filming one of our midweek conversations. And the videographer said before we started, now I want you to sit quietly for 60 seconds so I can get the room tone. By the way, I'd never heard that phrase used before, room tone. I thought it was pretty cool. I felt like a tech insider. I can't wait to video something and say, hey, have we checked the room tone? <laughs> Pastor Dustin looked at her and he said, this is gonna be the hardest part of my day. I can relate. Now listen, I have no doubt Pastor Dustin can sit silently for 60 seconds. But when someone tells you to, then we struggle. It's like someone saying, be spontaneous. And you just freeze up. But when God says those words to us, we hear it from another place. Everybody read this with me. Let's read it out loud. Lake County Online, read it with us. Be still and know that I am God. There is something I can only know about God when I am still. So, for the next 60 seconds, I want us to just be still and know that he is God. I'm going to time it. Don't punch it in on your device. 
just sit still in your seat here in Apopka, Lake County, online. I'm going to ask you, just try not to move at all. Take some slow, deep breaths. Let's be still. how easy it is to sing about being still, how hard it is to practice. Part of being still is silence. It's not a stretch to say that our ability to be silent with someone is largely contingent on our level of intimacy or familiarity with that person. Melinda and I have been married over 38 years now, and we have learned to sit silently with each other and enjoy what one writer calls a bonding silence. Now, there are those times when we unfortunately can experience the unbonding of the silent treatment marked by passive aggressiveness or anger. There's an old story about a couple driving down a country road for several miles, not saying a word. An earlier discussion had led to an argument and neither of them wanted to concede their position. So they were giving each other a big dose of the silent treatment. As they drove, they passed a barnyard full of mules and goats and pigs and the husband couldn't resist. And he sarcastically said, relatives of yours? And the wife immediately replied, yes, in-laws. I'm not talking about the silent treatment that leads to exchange. I'm talking about the quality of silence that we enjoy on long drives through quiet moments, sitting on the couch, or just a walk together. Couples that are just starting to date or even early in marriage feel a compulsion to fill every moment of silence with talking. And when you're starting out, that's understandable because you're fascinated and infatuated with each other. You're in a season of discovery and any kind of silence between you might be taken as boredom or disinterest, but something changes over the years. And while we continue to discover parts of our lives together, we now have the capacity to simply be with each other. Take a look at this. The more familiar you are with someone, the easier it is to be silent in that person's presence. If that general observation is true, that has many implications for our lives with God. One could argue that discomfort with being silent before God just might reveal how unfamiliar we are with God. 
You see, Christian faith, especially much of the Protestant evangelical and Pentecostal traditions, can be quite noisy. Our Sunday worship gatherings are filled with incessant sights and sounds, often smothering the opportunity for silence. And that's why so many of us appreciate the weekly practice of communion. For those brief moments, there's usually no one talking or singing or moving about. We're just remembering and reflecting and renewing. And then lastly, of course, in our time with God, we're going to want to pray. We spend time in prayer. So many people tell me they struggle praying for more than a few seconds, let alone for more than a few minutes. And they ask me sometimes, how can I get better at praying? Here's what I want you to know above everything else. Prayer is not a technique to be mastered. It's not a formula to be memorized. It's a relationship to be entered into. That's what prayer is. So many people are concerned with doing it right. They get frustrated in their attempts and they end up not doing it at all. In prayer, we're constantly called to let go of our need to achieve mastery and perform perfectly. There's no such thing as being professionals of prayers. We're always beginners. There are instances when I spend time with God in silence and I can sense his love and his mercy. But then there's occasions when I just feel like I had a nice quiet time on the patio. But like with most of our closest relationships, listen, even in the ordinary moments, our shared presence is a gift. As followers of Jesus, we seek to pattern our life around his priorities. And Jesus had no greater priority than prayer. Jesus prayed when his life was crowded and draining. After he began his public ministry, privacy became difficult. It says the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus prayed when he faced important choices. When it came time to select those who would be his closest companions, he sought guidance. One of those days, Jesus went out into the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 as apostles. Jesus prayed when he was sad or distressed. During Jesus' ministry, his cousin John the Baptist was arrested and eventually executed. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew privately to a solitary place to be alone with his father. Jesus prayed when he needed strength for his work. One morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon Peter came looking for him and said, Jesus said, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. Jesus prayed when he was concerned about people he loved. When he was about to die, Jesus knew his disciples would fail and he told Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed when he faced an insurmountable problem. Jesus went as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. He said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. It's easy to find ourselves feeling guilty when we read those descriptions of Jesus' practice of prayer. But guilt has never helped anyone pray more or better over the long haul. Never. So consider this question. Do you think Jesus prayed a lot because he wanted to pray or because he thought he should pray? I think Jesus wanted to pray. I think that for us to pray much or deeply, we need to move from what we think we should do to what we want to do. Prayer was not an energy drainer for Jesus. It was an energy giver, and it can be for us. 
If we come to see God, not only as our father, but as our friend, when I meet a critic who wants to argue with me, I lose energy. When I meet my best friend, I gain energy. God wants to meet us as our friend. Friend, the ability to love, the ability of love to speak to the deepest places of our hearts never goes away. Let me ask you this, it's kind of silly. Have you ever noticed how people in love sometimes speak to each other in baby talk? Hey, sugar booger, give me a little hug. Hey, my little baby pop, what you doing? (laughs) It's immensely intimate and private, and it's extremely off-putting to people around you. If you do it, I hope I never hear it. I'm sorry you had to hear that. But we do it because it's the tenderest language we know. Jesus' prayer life demonstrated this intimacy because he called God Abba. It's an Aramaic word, much like Dada or Mama. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Portions of the New Testament are written in Aramaic rather than Greek. Abba was a Jewish child's first word because it was easy to say. And somehow when Jesus was with God, the tender love that an adult offers to a child to give strength is what he received from his father. And he said, Abba. It doesn't stop here. For Jesus told his followers they could have this same experience. This is why why Paul wrote that by the Spirit we can say, Abba, Father. Eugene Peterson put it like this in his message paraphrase. He said, God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. John Ordberg wrote this, prayer more than any other single activity is what places us in the flow of the spirit. When we pray, hearts get convicted, sin gets confessed, believers get united, intentions get encouraged, people receive guidance, the church is strengthened, stubbornness gets melted, wills get surrendered, evil gets defeated, grace gets released, illness gets healed, sorrows are comforted, faith is born, hope is grown, and love triumphs. In prayer, in the presence of God, we come closest to being fully ourselves. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Just bow your heads. Lake County online, just bow your heads. Nobody drifts into discipleship. No one accidentally begins to follow Jesus. And no one stumbles into a life of faithfulness. It starts one step at a time. And it starts with spending time with him just spend a moment here before we sing before we continue to worship corporately just spend a moment privately tell God you want to spend more time with him Tell him you want to start spending time with him. Don't beat yourself up. Be patient and humble. Learn to relax in the rhythms of his grace. He wants to meet with you 
more than you want to meet with him. Abba, thank you for that intimacy. Thank you for that invitation into intimacy. And we have it through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.